The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter 5, 1-11. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. About a month and a half ago, I was um, able to go to Washington, D.C. and enjoy a trip as a chaperone uh, with my son, who's uh, going into seventh grade now. And one of the memorials there, if you've ever visited or maybe have heard of it, is the FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt Memorial. It's all outdoors. Uh, It's an interesting uh, walk through his presidency and uh, that time. and to kind of get a little glimpse of who uh, he was. And as you notice, as you kind of walk through this somewhat of a maze and waterfall, it's really beautiful. Um, You see these statues and figures and kind of the way they portray that walk through uh, his presidency. You kind of see um, him in, and many of you may have heard of this, but him in, in seated positions. And um, there are moments in throughout it, you kind of wonder, okay, what's going on? Why this and why that? Um, At 39, he was actually diagnosed with polio. And so uh, FDR actually was bound to a wheelchair and actually designed his own wheelchair out of bike tires. It was very interesting how he made this. But he didn't want, and it shows him with like cloaks on and a lot of coats and things seated because he didn't want his wheelchair to be exposed to uh, any moments of public notoriety, especially as the country was going through difficult things. And I understand, you know, at the moment there was, in his time, he wanted strength to be portrayed. He did not want it to be weakness. And what's interesting, later on, they put at the very beginning of the memorial uh, when you walk in, at him seated in the wheelchair. So like right when you walk in there, you see it. But then when you go through the presidency, it's all kind of cloaked. 
And it's interesting, I mean, in not putting that up front, especially as at that time of, in that time period of difficulty in our country and wanting to portray strength, wanting our leadership to be something that's really strong and adhered to and feared and, and, and all of those things. You kind of think about that as the country. I want to stop to ask, what, do you, what is the thing that we put forward as the church's leadership? You know, if we we're going to walk through the doors, what is the leadership of the church to be portrayed? What's that picture? What's to, what's to be captured there? And, and when it comes to that, uh, the leadership of the church, and even as we read here, is, is to be witness of who Jesus is. But we think about who Jesus is and was, he still is, but it, it, he wasn't someone who put himself in positions of major authority or power. He was constantly in a humble state. In fact, it talks about his, his whole purpose in coming to this world, taking on flesh, was to submit himself in ways that he didn't need to. It was quite the opposite. There was not a hiding. If anything, there was a, a hiding of actually his full glory. Even at the transfiguration, there's a moment where Jesus with his disciples kind of reveals just a taste of the glory of who he is. And that's actually what's been hidden in his ministry. And what Peter does, and as we've kind of finished this letter, we're actually coming for a landing uh, today from looking and walking through the letter of 1 Peter, who Peter, uh, the apostle, the disciple that is very familiar, even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you've probably heard that name. He wrote two letters, and in this one that was written about the 60s AD, he finishes the letter by talking about what is the picture as you walk through, as we finish the letter of what the church is to be. And he does so by talking about it in ways that maybe we wouldn't think, because he's speaking to, to Christians who are in Rome at that time who are suffering, who are hurting, who are trying to make sense of like, what does it even mean for me to identify or say that I am a Christian, which the word Christian is used in First Peter, it's not even really used in many other places in the Bible except for a derogatory term in the book of Acts, this narrative account that, that the people of Rome are like, who are these Christians? And Peter says we need to exalt that name because that's who we are, Christ followers. What does it mean for the church and its leadership and, and trickling on out for all of us to be the picture of what people experience when they not just come in the walls of a church, but when they experience what it means to be a follower of Christ. So we're going to look at this final chapter and this final part of the letter in two, with two things, kind of two parts. One is shepherds. What, what are shepherds of the church and how do, what does that look like for us as a church? And then two, what does it mean for us to stand firm? How do we stand? That's a common verb in the, in the New Testament is to stand, stand firm. Uh, so how do we do that as Christians? Now let's look at this as shepherding and standing. Chapter five begins this way. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. What is an elder? <laughs> An elder was somebody, and in fact, the word elder, and this is why we're a Presbyterian church, actually the word presbyter is another word for elder. Uh, it could be synonymous. 
Uh, and that word can be interchanged. It was a structure that Peter's referring to that's a part of the church. So at this point, when the church, he's writing these letters, the church actually has a structure to it. It's not like a hose with nobody holding it. I mean, it's, there it is. There are people leading and loving and caring for the church. But to be called in any way in this time period, we need to say and acknowledge, as a leader of the church was pretty dicey. Because if you're identified in Rome at that time as someone who's leading this cause of Christian, Christianity, you could adhere more suffering, more persecution for that. Because, oh, you're the one who's continuing to purport this. So to be called an elder, to be called a shepherd, to be called a leader of the church was a little bit like, Ugh, and he's encouraging them. He's stepping in to say, this is what it means. I appeal as a fellow elder, Peter says, and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Now think about this. Peter, in that moment, is saying he was a witness. He's not just saying a witness as, uh, as to say, I've heard of these things, but a witness as to say, I've seen these things. You can ask me. This is a part of the, the, the eyewitness accounts that even the letters of Peter say that this is not just some you know, nice writing to build something in a church. This is someone who actually saw Jesus' sufferings and yet says, I'm a fellow elder. I'm a fellow person put here in the sufferings who's purporting and pushing out the good news of the gospel in the midst of, of all news that is out there. Verse two, he says, but be shepherds of the God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now, he jumps immediately from this structure to what is it? What is an elder supposed to do? To shepherd. <laughs> a shepherd to watch over. And this is a common kind of idea and picture in the Bible, the shepherds. You may think of like shepherding, the shepherds from Christmas. You, know, you think of uh, David was a shepherd. This is a common image that God uses. And one of the things we need to realize is that we're kind of maybe used, less used to shepherds. We're more used to cowboys, <laughs> We're more used to that kind of model of like people, you know, but there's a big difference between a cowboy and a shepherd. A, a cowboy is somebody who goes behind the cat. They're prodding. They're moving the cattle out and forward. They're less in front. They're more behind, pushing, gra grabbing this way and that. A shepherd is someone who sits in front, who leads by standing in front and walking Yes, gathering when they need to, leaving those sheep there, but going out to grab the other ones, but leading from the front posture. And I think sometimes in, in our idea, we may think, okay, what is the difference? Why is that a big deal? Well, in our culture, I think one reason the, the cowboy idea can become a little bit more uh, glorified and loved is because it comes with this rugged, individualistic kind of picture to it. Whereas the shepherd was someone, even in that time, who was not looked upon with great eyes. Even the shepherds that were brought to Jesus, when the angels came in Christmas, we always sing that, we read that passage, we're like, oh, 
the shepherds, you know, and the angels sing. Angels, we have heard on high. I won't sing the whole thing. But, you know, like, we kind of sing that, and we love that story of the shepherds. And we see that even in the, the Peanuts, Charlie Brown, like, the shepherds came out. You know, they're talked about. The shepherds were not liked. And the fact that the angels came, it was showing a complete contrast. It was actually showing that this court of heaven where the heavenly beings, the greatest voices that there are, the choir and courts are entering into a place that is of the lowest of low. That they're coming to the shepherds who are freaking out, and that's why they freak out, because we would too, because that's not a normal occurrence. And they're also thinking us because they're the ones dealing with the animals that would be unclean that they would serve for people to use to sacrifice so that they would make themselves clean. And yet by default, the shepherds themselves couldn't even go to, to the temple because they were unclean. And yet here's the picture of how the church is to be. Shepherds. Those who are to come in and lead in the front, to lead with humility, as it says. To lead, as it says, because not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to do. What does it mean to shepherd but by being willing in that role? It means that in Peter's day, like I said, to take up that official role, that you're willing to step into a role that may receive even more persecution or suffering, was a big deal. It means you're not looking for a way to escape, but a way to step in, a way to care. That's why the, all the early mar, church martyrs, the people who actually were sacrificed, sacrificed their lives, it really is incredibly powerful to me because I don't really have to deal with that to that degree of sacrifice. And, and many of us don't, particularly our elders and our shepherds in this church. We are, we're not looking at our lives being lost, but the, the point for us is, are we, is there, a, is there a, a, a wanting to look to escape it? Or is it to be in it? It's powerful to me to think about people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a 21st century martyr uh, in the 1940s. He started an underground seminary for those uh, who in Germany, who were persecuted and, and in jail. People like that who are stepping out knowing that it will cost and yet are willing. You know the same word willing that Peter is using is the same word willing that is used to speak of Jesus when he actually is going to Gethsemane. When he goes to that garden and he prays, Lord, if anything, could you take this away from me? Yet not my will, but thy will be done. Yeah, he humbles himself, puts himself in a shepherd position, eager, not for dishonest gain, but in other words, meaning not greedy. You know, at this point, there are the shepherds and, and elders, when you read that in the Bible, they were actually paid. It wasn't like some huge amount of payment, but there were people who looked at it, is it for the money or is it for the way to care, to shepherd. Eager with a heart that's desiring to serve, that wants to serve and, and may receive it. This is why Paul, and maybe you've heard this before, the Apostle Paul who wrote all those letters that we read, he actually took up tent making 
as a, as a second job. And the reason he did wasn't just to make money, but it was also to make sure people knew he was making money and take the burden off anybody who was paying for them. Because they didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have the means. It wasn't like what we have now. And they were able to do that. And ultimately, the example, not lording it over them, but entrusting it, being examples to the flock. But the ultimate example, as it says in verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Over and over in the Bible, it uses Jesus. And I know he is our redeemer, but he also is our example. He is also the one that we're to look to to say, this is how it's actually done. To contrast the pride and humility. To show that who's the one that's actually done this? Who's taken it up? Who is the shepherd that, that takes it in upon himself? And it says, I, I love this in, in verse 5, and I think this is where it moves from just those people who are elders and shepherds to everyone. It says, in the same way, you, you who are younger, submit yourselves to elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. All of you clothe yourselves. All of you, it says that all of us are to clothe ourselves in humility. It says it over and over and over. Humility is constantly in here. I'm, I'm performing a wedding uh, today, actually, for some members of our church. And uh, they're actually using uh, a passage in the Bible that uh, is from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. It's on humility. It talks about the humility of Christ. It actually begins that it says, this is how we are to be with one another, humble ourselves. But then it goes straight into, as, as Peter does, it's not all about you. It's about how has Jesus humbled himself? In fact, inside my wedding ring, I say this often, um, is, is actually printed within it, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Because there's something about what we are to be a part of in humility that really is the key to what it means to shepherd, to lead. In fact, I know that many times I've read Harvard Business Review talked about if you want to be a good leader, then one of the top five things to be as a leader, Harvard Business Review, is to be humble. To show humility as a leader. If you want people to follow you, it's, and humility isn't just a, a willy-nilliness, and it's not a, it's not a weakness, it's knowing that it's not all about you. It's not making it all about you. This is why it says here, what does God oppose? What is God against? He quotes Proverbs in, in verse five, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. You ever think about what does God oppose? What's he against? And what destroys any way that we can care for one another when we make it all about us? We make it about what we can do for us rather than what it really means to do for them. You know the word clothe here? It was interesting when I was looking this up. And I don't just, again, I don't say this because it's like me showing cool. It's actually really cool for me when, when the Greek of a word unpacks something. The word clothe means to tie. 
to tie on. And it's actually the same word that's used when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And he ties, it literally, the same Greek word, ties a towel around his waist. And he begins to go to each of his disciples and wash their feet. And they were not only astounded by this, but if you read the Gospels, the narrative accounts, Peter is the one that's like, oh, no, you cannot. It's, of course, Peter, the one who's so out loud, the one who writes this right here, uses the same word to let us know, to clothe. What do we clothe ourselves with? It's what I didn't want Jesus to clothe himself with. Because Peter actually in that moment does two things. Very Peter. He says, oh, no, 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 don't wash my feet. No, 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 you couldn't do that. You know, it's kind of like what we do when, when somebody offers to pay for the check. We're like, no, 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 no. I got it, I got it, I got it. I can take care of it myself. You're our teacher, you're our master. How would you ever wash my feet? He says, if I don't wash you, you can't have any part of me. You know what Peter says after that? He says, wash my whole body then, head to toe. Jesus is like, Peter, (laughs) if I wash you, you're clean. But for any teacher, rabbi, to put themselves in a position to actually clothe, to tie humility around their waist and touch the feet of someone else was saying they were a servant of a servant. They weren't just a servant who did the work in the house, but you got the servant's servant to actually wash the dirty feet of those who are in the house. Because on your feet could be anything. This is that time of year in summer when we all wear flip-flops or sandals. And you know as well as I, sometimes you take those off and there's that line of dirt around. I know my son has natives, you know those natives? He will literally take those off and there's a ring around his feet, like a perfect ring of where the dirt has settled in and who knows what else he's stepped in. That is to the same degree. Think about it then. This is where they would throw trash on the street, where the streets were not paved like ours. They didn't have the manicured grass to run in. Their feet were disgusting. And yet, this is where Jesus' hands go. This is what he clothes himself with in humility to touch their feet, to show what it really means to be a servant. Because how would you ever want to cast your, any of your anxieties to somebody if you didn't know they would really care for you that much? When he says, therefore, under God's mighty hand, he may lift you up in due time, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The word cast means to burden. You can burden him. I was just talking to somebody this morning about how we hate, we, don't, we always use that for, I don't want to be a burden. Do you know what God is saying? The opposite of that. He's saying, bring your burden. And this is the navigation of what the church is to be. Not a place where you can't bring your burden, or you only bring certain amounts, but you have a place where you know that you cast your burdens to the Lord, and together you're walking through this. Together we do this as a church. And then he moves from not only the shepherds of how the leadership, how what shepherding, what caring for one another means, to then standing in it. Because then how do we stand outward to what's coming towards us? 
Verse eight, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Okay, well, I'm sure at this point you're like, okay, elders, that kind of makes sense. We deal with that now. Devil, Satan. But this is the thing that the Bible's acknowledging. We deal with a lot of evil in our world that we talk about. The Bible talks about that plenty. In fact, as we've walked through 1 Peter, you've probably seen a number of things that speaks into that. But the Bible also acknowledges there's not only a natural evil, but a supernatural one. There is actually an enemy that comes at us. There is actually someone there that is an adversary against us. And we are called, as verse nine says, to resist him and stand firm. And if you noticed from verse eight to the end, it says stand firm a number of times in a number of ways. To actually stand firm. It means a fixed endurance. I was listening to uh, a 30 for 30 podcast, which is an ESPN thing some time ago. And there's a race uh, in the middle of the desert. And I can't remember, it was like a 100-mile race that people train for. And um, it's where you kind of like, you run through temperatures that get up to like 160 degrees. And people that train for these things, it, here's what's interesting. They don't just kind of like run normally. When I listen to this specific woman who is like one of the best at running these, she literally will sleep at night. She'll turn the air up. Now, this is like the worst thing for all of us. This is like what we, we wish wouldn't happen. We'll turn her air up to like 85 to 90, like put the heat on, even whatever it is outside, and sleep and live in those temperatures and run in specific sweat shirts in the middle of summer to train for these things so that her body gets used to and starts working on the endurance. And it said at one point when they were running out that all the training that she did, she's running and all of a sudden they see this giant cloud and they're like, what is that? Oh, it's a sandstorm. And guess what? They didn't call the race. They were like, you gotta keep running. You know, does that sound fun to you? <laughs> What kind of sport are you training for for that? No thanks. But that is the kind of fixed endurance. She was like, that's what I, hey, I knew I was coming. I chose this race because I knew it could send anything to me. And even if I'm not prepared, I'm going for it. It's a fixed endurance. In fact, that's what, what someone encouraged me just this last week when I was at General Assembly looked at me and said, you need to stand firm because you're being attacked. I was just talking to a friend and it wasn't something that was overwhelmingly dramatic. They were just like, stand firm. Endure this. You have a Savior that has submitted themselves to hold you up, that you can cast your anxiety upon, that has you, and against the evil one, the devil. And the devil is real. And the way that he works is real. Shakespeare said it this, the devil has power to assume any pleasing shape. 
See, often we think of the devil as this specific character as we can identify quickly. But what this is saying that the devil comes in a million different ways. And particularly the evil one or enemy or adversary, as it may be in your translation, means that he's an accuser. You know those voices that you hear over and over? That tell you that you're this or that? Or that you should do it this way or that way. Those ways that that when you wake up or when you go to bed that point a finger back at you and say, you really aren't as great as you think you are. You're an awful person. Begin to accuse you. Those things that run in your head that you go, where is this coming from that plague your mind when you're driving down the road and it pops in your brain? The thing that you may come back to over and over when you do a confession at a church because it's the place that plagues you that is an accuser. And it actually is a legal stance that the devil, that the supernatural figure does and is real to point at you and say, you are not as loved, you are not as cared for, and you cannot cast your anxieties on him. Plus, you got it. You can handle it. And that's where we go. Why does Peter end by talking about the devil in his letter? Because he knows in every way what we're not seeing and not wanting to see is that one figure that is telling us and accusing us over and over of the ways that we think we either do have it and we don't or don't have it and we do. And reminding us of how guilty we are and that you can make it out of your shame. You can handle your shame. And yet what is the point of the gospel? Why does he move even from that to say, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. This is who you are. Because the devil is prowling. He literally is moving, looking for someone to devour. This image of a lion roaring constantly is that this image that he is moving. He is looking. He is watching and seeking and he gives us this picture of it I remember I had a friend from college who worked at the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago and uh, a few years after I graduated from college I was able to go up and visit and um, she was able to get us behind the scenes and so we literally got to like in the seal tank like they're all swimming below we got to walk out on the little island part where they like pop up and like look and they're all around us. It's probably dumb. You're probably not supposed to do this. Like I look back now, I'm like, why is she doing this? Um, And they're like sitting there looking like, why are you in here? Do you have food? And uh, no, I have nothing. Please don't attack me. You know, like it was so cool. Well, I remember she took us behind where they actually have um, some of the big cats and they open this giant, almost like a bank vault door. And you know, sometimes when you're at a bank and you see those old vault doors, and then behind it, there's like a little, just almost like thin plexiglass. 
That's kind of what this was. Just And they open it, and there is a cheetah literally sitting there waiting, knowing that there's food about to come. I'm standing, the thing sitting is this tall, sitting. And all of a sudden, it sees me, no food, not recognizable, and I'm between it about from here to the podium with that thin plexiglass, and it bares its teeth at me. And I, I, I still cannot get that out of my brain. It was the most freaky thing I have ever seen. And it just was letting me know, I'm sitting here, but I could take you in a moment. P- Peter wants us to know the devil is not weak. The number one thing I think we do as a high pragmatic society is think, and this is what he wants. We think, oh, he works in places that are more common. Places maybe in another country where they don't have as high, you know, scientific revolution. Uh-uh. He works in systems. He works in jobs. He works in families. He works in our brains. And he is seeking those to devour. And we have to stand firm against him. And not only that, it says in James, and Peter and James say the same thing, that we are to resist him. To resist him. And that if we resist him, he will flee from us. That we have the resource of who we are in Christ to stand against him. And stand against that evil that is so real. And that's what this table is pointing to. It actually says this at the end of this passage, which I think is so profound. It says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. He pits against that. Look, and he says, to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. He puts the the futile small time that we are suffering against the beautiful eternal grace and glory that we actually possess. And you know what this table is? It's first a table of the chief shepherd. This shows you that it was not my blood or your, your blood or body. This was the chief shepherd who humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. That he gave himself in this way. This is his humility. Nothing else in all creation can tell us this. And yet this is the way you're resourced. You go, how do I stand firm? We can't stand firm on our own. We can't do it by our own strength. We stand firm because we stand in the grace of the one who equips us to go. And notice all the names that he finished with the help of Silas, right? And then he talks about Mark and and the rest of the church. Mark is the one who wrote the gospel, Mark. He says, these are real people because you are not alone. We suffer together and we stand firm in Christ together until he returns because this time is short and guess what's happening? When he returns... We will be together forever with him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together.